0: When we look out at the universe, at the night sky, there are all sorts of things we're used to seeing in the exact same place, with the exact same brightness, with the exact same properties, night after night after night. Other than the few closest stars to us, which appear to move throughout the sky, and the planets and things in our solar system, which are close by, most of the things beyond, the distant stars, the galaxies beyond the Milky Way, they rarely appear to change on a night-to-night, month-to-month, or even year-to-year basis. But... A few things do. In astronomy, we call events that either appear out of nowhere and then disappear, or where something suddenly brightens, we call those transients. In particular, the most spectacular transients in the universe arise from cataclysmic events. Things like the deaths of stars, mergers of stars, or stellar corpses. We are going to uncover more of these than ever before in the coming decade. We're going to study them to better precision, with better equipment, and with better techniques than ever before. And that's what we're going to be exploring here on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome to the program PhD candidate at Caltech, Anna Ho. Anna is an expert in stellar transients, in the deaths of these stars, and in particular, in unusual events that don't necessarily appear to match anything that we've seen before. I'm so pleased to introduce her to you and to have her be our guest on this edition of the podcast. Anna welcome to the program
1: thank you for having me
0: yeah it's my absolute pleasure i'm really interested in seeing what unfolds you know if you were if you were someone who was new to this field who was new to studying transient events maybe 10 or 20 years ago you know before the most recent facilities like the zwicky transient facility or the pan Stars collaboration came online what, what would you sort of say was the state of the field, you know, looking back, you know, just even a few years ago?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So about, let's say, 10 years ago, the state of the field was that we wanted to observe a particular kind of stellar death. And so those are called uh, type 1a supernovae. People are interested in those because if you collect enough of those, you can learn about the expansion of the universe. So you can use them as cosmological tools. So people were hoping to uncover more of those. And so we designed our surveys to be able to find them efficiently. Now type 1a supernovae, they evolve on a particular timescale. So uh, say a timescale of a week or so, 10 days. And so all you really have to do is you have to uh, visit a part of the sky about once per week. The problem with that is that if you are uh, only visiting the sky once per week, you'll miss things that are evolving faster. So appearing and disappearing on timescales of hours to days. uh, And that's the kind of work that I'm doing now.
0: And that's... And that's, I think, really remarkable, because if we go back to sort of the late 90s, the 2000s, you know, when right around the turn of the millennium, we were really just coming to grips with the fact that our universe seems to contain dark energy, that this was a big cosmological surprise, Uh, really only in the 1990s with the observations of large-scale structure and then type 1a supernovae which, you know, are so famous because they are standard, they are a standard candle. So if you can measure how one of these transient events brightens, reaches its peak brightness, and then fades out, you can get a good uh, indicator, you can get a good handle on how far away it is from you. And if you measure its observed brightness and you know how far away it is, you can get a handle on how you know, how intrinsically bright it must have been. And so you combine all of these things and you can start to say, oh, we saw a supernova over here with this brightness and a supernova over here with this brightness. And you start to find, as you go farther and farther away, that somehow these objects appear to be farther away, appear to be fainter than they would be in a universe without dark energy. And that's how that part was first discovered. But as you say, if you're only looking on week-to-week timescales, not only are you not measuring the supernovae with the accuracy and the precision and getting that full light curve to really great precision that you would like to get, Instead, you're not only getting them possibly in later stages after you miss that initial rise, but you're also missing out on a whole slew of other classes of events. And I don't just mean things like variable stars that are going to confound you. I mean things like um, like bursts, like kilonovi, like like other rare but spectacular events that we would otherwise miss.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So... You were involved in an investigation of an event that uh, took place in 2018, which is known as the Astronomical Cow, right? It's, yes. <laughs> eight, it's like AT 2018 Cow. Yeah, by um, total
1: coincidence.
0: Right, right. It's just, you know, this is an automated name, and it just comes out with this stuff, and the last three letters happen to be cow. It's like uh, it's like my license plate that just happens to have the word bye and it's spelled yeah. B-I-E. Uh, please. <laughs> Nobody go and stalk my license plate based on this. There's
1: probably a transient with that name too.
0: There probably is. There probably is, and so like I could be like, oh, that's my license plate, um, <laughs> when I find it. But I, I'm so curious. You know, when we, when we discovered that event, there was a big debate over what it was that we were seeing because it seemed like initially, I think it seemed like this was a big surprise that this didn't fit any of the models we had. And then when people came up with a variety of models, there was a disagreement on which of two very different ones seemed to fit the data better. You were one of the lead people on this. So can you tell us a little bit about what this event was and what made it so special when we observed it?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I guess for those who aren't familiar with it, maybe I can give a bit of context for how this was discovered. Go for it. So there is a, uh, at the the moment, nowadays, we have a bunch of robotic telescopes all over the world that every night scan the night sky looking for new explosions. And when they do find a new explosion, and if they find one that's particularly interesting, uh, they can issue an alert to what's called the astronomer's telegram. So that goes to the whole astronomical community. So anyone uh can subscribe to it. And since I work in this field, uh, I have a subscription. And so my first the first I heard of the cow was because I got one of these Telegram notices. Um it was discovered by the team uh, Atlas. So, um first we saw this and what was so weird about it? Well, there are two things that were weird about it. I guess it was a combination of things that made it weird. It was that it was uh it had appeared out of nowhere. So very recent observations uh, of that same position in the sky had seen nothing. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this very bright thing appeared. So that was kind of weird. And then the other thing that was weird is that it was uh, it aligned with a galaxy that we know and that we know the distance to. And since we knew the distance, we could immediately say if this if this explosion is located in that galaxy, we know the intrinsic brightness. And if it truly was in that galaxy, it would have to be very bright. As so the combination of how uh, how intrinsically bright it was and how quickly it had become so bright, uh, that was what was really surprising uh, and quite spectacular. So I think at first none of us believed it could possibly be in this galaxy. We all thought, oh, it's just some star that happens to be aligned with this galaxy, and so it's way closer to us, and so not really that bright. But over the next few days, uh, since you know so many astronomers had now heard of this, people were pointing their telescopes at this at this uh, spot at this spot of light in the sky and uh, getting spectra, some more detailed observations. And I remember the moment I found out uh, that it truly was in that galaxy. I was just leaving uh, a lecture, being taught by my uh, by my research supervisor. And I so I walked out of the room, and I took out my phone and checked my email, and I saw the announcement. And I just turned right around, went back into the classroom, and held up my phone to his face. Um, and <laughs> so from that moment on, uh, we were totally all in. And so I was running around, uh, Figuring out what telescopes I could use to observe this, you know, what information might be most useful to figuring out uh, what this thing was. So then over the next couple of months, this became really one of the most intensely studied cosmic explosions ever, I think. Uh, you know, astronomers all over the world, uh, observing all across the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, all kind of joined together to watch this thing unfold. Uh, but what was so weird is that, I mean, this thing was so nearby um, well, relatively, you know, compared to a lot of the other explosions that we see in astronomy, can you um, give
0: us a uh, can you give us a good handle on the distance so we know, like, okay, most of the explosions we see in our own galaxy, we're talking things that are within a hundred thousand light years of us. Things in other galaxies are typically, if we're looking out at the distant universe for rare events, we're talking about things many billions or even tens of billions of light years away. So there's a large in between there, so for this event, what what distance were we talking about?
1: Yeah, so this was uh, sixty megaparsecs, which I think which is pars- about
0: like two hundred million light years, right? So so this thing is relatively nearby. If you talk about like, for instance, the. Uh, the giant event horizon telescope image that we have of that first black hole event horizon we've ever imaged, this is really only three or four times farther away than that, and that is the closest really supermassive black hole we have to Earth. So, we're, we're really talking about things that are still in our real local neck of the woods. We're talking about things that are, in astronomy terms, at low redshift, at a relatively small distance from us, and yet this is an incredibly bright, transient event, it makes you think like, wow, are we seeing something that's really rare? Or are we just finally getting good enough at measuring these things that we're seeing a bright one that somehow we miss all the time? And these are actually quite common.
1: Right, exactly. Um, So I think everyone was very surprised. I mean, it's, it just seems kind of unlikely that you'll see something super rare, super close to us. Uh, But nonetheless, Uh, We had never really seen anything like this before. So it was so close. uh, It was so bright. We got so much data on it, and yet it didn't look like anything we had ever seen. And because of that, it was then very difficult. We couldn't really assign it any classification because it didn't fit into our existing scheme. Um, It shared some properties in common with one class of events, but then it shared other properties in common with a different class of events. And so it just didn't seem to fit neatly into any category.
0: Yeah. And that's that's kind of, you know, for me, I think that's like the dream project for a graduate student is when you when you're working on something, you're working in a field and then something new happens in your subfield and you say, oh, wow, we don't understand this. And and. And when I think when the follow up observations started coming in, that's when we really started to notice like how weird some of these things were. Like there was, there was, I believe, an extraordinarily large amount of iron present in this, and that that seemed like a, a really unusual thing like more more iron than you see from from other transients from other cataclysms it seemed like you were maybe getting whatever whatever event was causing this you were getting something like half a sun's worth of iron alone just showing up in this one transient event and that 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 by itself is is a spectacularly large amount of something that's relatively unusual, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So I actually, I didn't work on the chemical composition so much of this transient. Uh, my focus was on the environment that it exploded in, which is an important clue as to what it is that exploded in the first place. And then also on the energetics of the shockwave that was launched uh, in this explosion. So its velocity, its energy, um, which uh, itself resembled uh, certain supernovae that we've seen in the past.
0: And that, that's actually that's a remarkable clue because when you talk about the environment that it shows up in, you know, a lot of people I think they have this picture in their head of a supernova is it's a star and it's burning and it's burning and it's burning and it burns through the various stages of its life and in the then the core collapses, goes boom, and it explodes. And that's and that's a typical type two supernova, a core collapse supernova, whereas a type one A supernova is like You have two white dwarfs that are going to in-spiral and merge together, and then boom. Or you get a white dwarf that's accreting mass from a companion, and it crosses a threshold and boom. But that really misses out, I think, on an important aspect that that is your specialty, which is that when we talk about the environments of these supernovae, it's not like they're happening isolated from all the other matter. That typically, if you're going to form a supernova, there are two different ways that you can have large amounts of mass in its surrounding environment. One is if you have something like a type 2 supernova, as that star is evolving, or if that star had a previous companion, what's going to happen is there's going to be a large amount of ejecta from the star that surround it now in that environment so when it goes boom uh, you're going to see it sort of shrouded in this neutral material the other thing that can happen is that when you have stars like the types of stars that will go supernova, that will die in this core collapse supernova, they form in gas-rich environments, which often have dark molecular clouds and lots of absorptive material that in many cases hasn't fully been blown off by the new stars that are forming. Um, so I think when you talk about environment, that's, that's I think, a, a little bit of extra an extra level over what people typically think about it, but it, with specificity to AT twenty eighteen Cow, what was it that you saw that that made the environment so fascinating to you?
1: So I was using uh, a radio telescope to observe AT twenty eighteen Cow. So you know, just like we have these satellite dishes to pick up radio waves from uh, radio stations on Earth. We have what look like big satellite dishes, but are in reality telescopes that pick up radio waves from outer space. So I was using a, a big set of dishes or a set of big dishes uh, to uh, pick up radio waves from 18 cow. And from those radio waves, I was able to tell that the environment around this explosion was quite dense. So there was a lot of there was a lot of gas and dust there. Um, and that is something, you know, for that material to all be there probably it was related to the object that exploded so for example perhaps that object actually put that material there so it may be shed before it actually exploded Um, i was also able to tell that not only was it quite dense but it was confined and so uh when you go a ways out from the event it suddenly becomes a lot less dense so it was confined to a sort of um, you can think of it kind of like a, a bubble um and so, and that's something that we have seen in stellar explosions, in supernovae. We know that stars are capable of shedding a bunch of material shortly before they die. We don't know why they do that. That's one of the outstanding mysteries in these in the in this field. These these death omens. Um, but when I saw that, I thought, okay, this actually looks this looks like a stellar explosion. Uh, it's hard to explain that um, in some of the other models that have put that, that have been put forward. I think
0: yeah i think so too i think the uh i think the biggest competing model that i was aware of is people were saying that this could have been a tidal disruption scenario and that that's good for some things because a, a tidal disruption scenario is basically for our listeners when you have a when you have a star that has a close gravitational encounter with another massive object the mutual forces between them include tidal forces where basically um where the side that's closest to the other object that's you're feeling its gravity, the side that's closer feels a different gravitational force than the side that's further away. And these tidal forces can shear, tear, spaghettify, and otherwise rip this material apart. So if something is only tenuously held, like you have a supergiant star, for example, um, it's going to be very easy to rip large amounts of material off. And there was some evidence that I think agreed with that scenario but you were one of the people who worked on you know like you said the radio observations and i think those were some of the strongest observations that made it very difficult to fit to a tidal disruption scenario as opposed to a stellar cat- cataclysm like a like a supernova or a standard end of life explosion
1: yeah so i guess two things uh, to add one is that I mean, to be fair, I think we know a lot less about tidal disruption events than we know about supernovae. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's for people who work on modeling tidal disruption events to tell us uh, whether this kind of density and environment could be explained in a in a TDE model. Um, and then, yeah, and what you said, there are some pieces of evidence that that did resemble known titled disruption events. So I think it's it's kind of like this parable of these blind men with an elephant. Do you know this? Uh, yeah, but you tell it anyway. An and, oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so one of them, you know, they, one of them touches the trunk of the elephant and says, Oh, this is a snake. And then another person uh, touches the ear and says, Oh, this is a fan. Uh, I think and then another person touches the leg and says, Oh, this is a tree. Uh, another touches the side of the elephant and says, Oh, it's a wall. And I think something very similar happened here, where everyone who worked on this event had a different piece of this puzzle. And uh, each piece kind of looked like a different thing. So you could look at the optical spectra and say, oh, this is a tile disruption event. And then you could look at the uh, evolution of the temperature. And you might say, oh, this is a tile disruption event. But then you might look at the radio data and say, oh, this looks exactly like a supernova. And or you can look at the x-ray data. uh, And I think there also you might say, oh, this looks like a a supernova. So uh, yeah, I think that I think in the end, you know, this highlighted the importance of bringing together a lot of different pieces of information. And I think in this field of astronomy, in the past, we've often worked quite separately. Uh, So people specialize in, you know, the optical side or the radio side or the x-ray side. But I think what this made clear is that the way forward is we have to be able to kind of master all of these different techniques and then use them all together to make a uh, a single story that can explain all of them.
0: Yeah, and I think that's I think that's exactly the right approach. I think that's exactly the smart approach that you need to take because when you're when you're dealing with an astronomical mystery or any type of mystery, it's not enough to say like, well, I'm going to look at the piece of e- pieces of evidence that I understand the best and piece together the story from that. You have to say like, no, 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 I need to look at the full suite of evidence. And now that we have these enormous multi-wavelength observatories, where we can go from gamma rays to X rays to UV to to visible, to infrared, to microwave, to radio light, and observe the same object at the same time or over the same time scales with all these different telescopes, with these different observatories, and gain all this different information from it, you have to start putting things together in one unified model that makes sense. You you have to be able to explain the full suite of observations, and that's, and that's a real challenge where it looks like some pieces of evidence are pointing to one thing, some pieces of evidence are pointing to another thing, and nobody's ever seen an elephant before.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> um,
0: so I think that was a that was a remarkable one, and I think that uh, the consensus on this is that although uh, there are some TDE people who still think that's a viable candidate for this, it seems like the consensus is that this was, in fact, a supernova, that this was the violent death of a star that, for some reason, is... Um, ejected a large amount of material, maybe similar to what Ada Karina did back in the 19th century, or even possibly similar to what Beetlejuice may have done, you know, in the very recent past, which caused it to dim and then brighten again just over the last few months.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can say also that, you know, whenever you have only one event, you can only draw so many conclusions. But there actually have been two more uh, events that are that seem kind of similar to the cow, and so I think the hope is that we'll just find a whole suite more, and then we can do a more systematic analysis of their environments and their properties.
0: You are ahead of my homework. I do not know about both of these other <laughs> events. Um, would you like to tell me a little bit about what we, what we have learned about the additional events that appear similar to AT2018 Cal, and what, if anything, they've taught us about the nature of these types of transients?
1: Yeah. So, uh, right. So there have been two others. Uh, there's one that I recently worked on and recently, uh, uh, recently submitted for publication. Um, the other event, uh, my colleagues are working on that and it hasn't been submitted for publication yet. So I think I won't talk about that just cause I don't know what they would like me to say, what they would prefer. I don't say, so I'll just talk about the event that I worked on. Um, so we're calling this one the koala, because its name is, uh, it ends with K-W-L-A. So we were nice. trying to use the animal theme. So the koala, um, so unfortunately, the problem is that this one's a lot further away than the cow. So we have, uh, the observations are much less detailed, but um, it shares uh, two, or I guess two key properties. One key property is that the optical light curve, so the way that it goes up and down in brightness, uh, which was remarkably fast. For the cow and remarkably bright, as I mentioned earlier, are almost identical. So in that sense, it looks basically the same. Um, it also has very, very luminous uh, radio emission, actually even more luminous than the cow by, by an order of magnitude. Uh, but um, but those properties combined were already basically unique to the cow. Uh, and now we have a second example of that. This one uh, was in a galaxy that has a very high, uh, what we call a very high star formation rate. So this is a pretty dinky little galaxy, kind of like the um, uh, the small Magellanic Cloud uh, near the Milky Way, but it is forming stars at a very high rate. And so that means that it's more likely to host uh, a stellar explosion because the, uh, how do I describe this? Sorry, uh,
0: well, this part I know. This part I know, oh, okay. and that's because when you have a when you have a large mass that's undergoing a large amount of star formation, right? Something like a starburst galaxy, where you have a a galaxy that basically the entire galaxy becomes a star forming region. Um, you are forming all these different types of stars all at once. You're forming the low-mass red dwarfs, you're forming sun-like stars, but you're also forming these short-lived, very massive stars that might only live for a few million years before they burn through all of their fuel and go supernova. So you have this very messy environment that's also rich in these hot, young, blue stars that are very likely to end their lives in these cataclysms and that's why these star forming galaxies are such excellent candidates for where you're likely to find something like a supernova or in general a transient cataclysm
1: right yes exactly so i th- yeah, yeah it has to do with delay times basically so if you're seeing a massive star explosion you know, these stars don't live very long before they explode. And so the star had to have been formed recently. So you need kind of recent, you need to have recent star formation in order to have these massive star explosions. So this kind of galaxy that hosted the koala um, is very much, uh, it's a starburst galaxy. It's very much the kind of thing where we expect to see massive star explosions. Um, So I think that's another piece of evidence suggesting that these kinds of things, whatever they are, uh, come from massive stellar death.
0: Yeah, and that that I think is fascinating. I didn't know about the second example. I really didn't know about the third example because I am I am not subscribed to the same list serve you're subscribed to. I I don't get those (laughs) alerts. Um, but that is that is really fascinating. And I think the fact that you have these similarities and you have those indirect hints of you know look at the environment in which this is occurring, I, I think that's really fascinating. I think what we're going to wind up with, um, and I think it'll just be one, but you never know what we're going to discover in the coming years and decades. Um, we're going to have at least one new class of supernova explosion that these few objects that we have now are sort of the the typical progenitors of, that these are the typical examples of. Um, and that's kind of a fascinating new class of discoveries to make.
1: Oh, yeah, it's absolutely wonderful to be involved in the early stages of something like that.
0: So a lot of things that make this possible is you mentioned these automated facilities you mentioned atlas there's also the zwicky transient facility there's yeah, that's also the yeah i
1: work with primarily
0: right and there's also the panstars telescope which surveys the entire sky very rapidly of as deeper than ever before in the optical um and these, these automated surveys that go and, you know, just collect enormous amounts of data in various wavelengths, with various cameras at different positions on Earth, at different staggered times, um, this is the type of data that 20, 30 years ago, astronomers would have been salivating for. And this type of, I guess, big data in astronomy is a relatively new thing. Um, what what sort of, you know, what would you like people to appreciate about how much data we're getting and how much information about the universe we're able to learn from looking at this?
1: Well, I can give uh, an example of how it is, of what it's like with this Zwicky transient facility, since that's the data I work with the most. So ZTF, this is an old, I, I think what's, uh, what I love about ZTF, this is an old telescope. So this telescope uh, these telescopes at Palomar Observatory, is uh, a couple hours south of Los Angeles, and they were built in, I think, the 30s. Uh, and the, what made all this new work possible is that the telescope itself stayed the same, but a new camera was put on the telescope, and the telescope was roboticized. So no human, ideally, has to be involved in the process. So this telescope every night just robotically um, scans the sky it uh, for every new picture that it takes it compares that picture with a picture of what we know the sky normally looks like at that part of this in that position and then it subtracts the two so when you subtract the two anything that's new that wasn't there before will pop out so then we have uh, software basically that picks out all of these new points of light that weren't there before uh, and the number of those new points of light uh, every night is about 500,000, so half a million. Now, a lot of that is actually junk. So it's just uh, kind of artifacts from the process of image subtraction. So these are not real astrophysical sources. Um, a lot of those things are flares, so uh, sort of burbling activity from stars in our galaxy, which is kind of a... Uh, you know a foreground fog for people like me who are interested in distant explosions but could actually you know be very interesting i have colleagues who work on on stellar activity in the galaxy too and for them you know my stuff would be the the fog so for each scientist who wants to make use of a telescope like this you have to be able to take the 500,000 new points of light and whittle them down into something manageable so we use uh, our team we use machine learning to perform an initial cut and assign each point a score saying how likely it is to be real and how likely it is to be bogus so then i uh, i you know i accept the things that are likely to be real and then i sift through them myself and apply a certain set of criteria to try and pick out the things that i am personally interested in and then on a given day i might look through 50 or so um of these candidates and then maybe there will be one that I want to act on. So that's the kind of uh, that's the scale that we're talking about. And it's only going to get harder. So the kind of next generation facility, uh, LSST, the large synoptic survey telescope, that's going to multiply the number by about 10. So everything we're doing now, uh, multiply it by 10
0: wow and that's and that's enormous because i know things like for example the panstars telescope which is on uh, on the on haleakala in maui um that that collects i think more data than any other astronomical facility in the world on a night to night basis i think they take something like over a petabyte of data nightly which is just a crazy amount of data uh, to me, uh, because they survey three quarters of the entire sky. I think every two days they get it, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is nuts to me. Which is nuts. And ZTF is not that much different because it's. In many ways, I think even this old 1930s telescope is, I think, larger, bigger aperture than the Pan telescope. The the big thing that allows you to do this is the camera. And I have this picture in my head after your description that you, every night you're basically taking a whole forest. And, you know, you do your differential astronomy where you take a a known sample of this sky and you subtract it from your recent observation, and you're going to see all sorts of things. You're going to see, like you say, hot pixels, which are just camera errors or from cosmic rays that 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 doesn't correspond to an astronomical event. Um, You're going to see things like variable stars, which isn't what you're interested in. You're going to see flares and outbursts that are nearby, but also not what you're interested in. And so it's a real sort of uh, real life account of that old saying that one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data. Um, right. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and what
0: you're doing is you're whittling this forest down to the toothpick that you're interested in investigating.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. That's the challenge uh, for all of us now.
0: Yeah. Um, and so when you take all of these different observatories, you know, presumably, if they're all covering enough of the sky together, uh, you're going to start seeing the same event, the same... the same cataclysm in multiple different automated telescopes. And then you can choose and say, okay, this is what we're going to do our follow-up on based on the preliminary properties that we've seen. This thing might be interesting. And for you, interesting means this might be an end-of-life stellar cataclysm.
1: Yeah. So my specialty uh, is even more focused than that. So I'm particularly interested in things that are fast. So things that appear and disappear on the timescale of hours to days. Uh, so not the longer-lived supernovae like type 1As that go on for you know, a week or uh, a couple of weeks. And um, this is a relatively unexplored part of the of the transient landscape. And so it's been exciting to, I guess, venture out into new territory.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of weird. You know, when I was when I was in graduate school, so this is oh geez, this is almost 20 years ago now, um, we're talking about um things like microquasars as really the only um transients that were known on that rapid of a time scale, where you would have something that uh, we think is like you know, just like a quasar is a supermassive black hole that is feeding on some matter, we think these microquasars are very small stellar mass black holes that happen to be feeding on matter at the moment, and they can turn on or turn off very quickly, that they'll they'll have some emissions and then they suddenly won't anymore. Um those are the only things I think I knew of some 15, 20 years ago that were were changing on timescales that rapid. Uh, and that that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Like AT 2018 cow is just one example, but it seems like there are many other classes of events even that take place on faster timescales than, say, a classic supernova does.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I can give you uh, another example So in the 70s, I think it was, we launched these satellites um, up into low Earth orbit that were designed to see whether there were nuclear tests being carried out on the ground. Um, And so those were designed to look for bursts of gamma ray emission. But what those satellites instead found was bursts of gamma ray emission coming from outer space. So that launched this whole field of gamma ray bursts. Uh, At first, we had no idea what these were. Now we believe that most of these gamma ray bursts actually come from the deaths of massive stars. So for some reason, it seems like some massive stars, when they die, they form a, say, a black hole. And that black hole is spinning quickly, probably, and is able to launch this relativistic, uh, narrow jet of matter. And that jet... uh, breaks out from the surface of the star. And if it just happens to be pointing at us on Earth, we see this burst of gamma rays. But as this jet uh, goes on its way, it collides with all this gas and dust around the star that we talked about earlier. And that produces uh, optical emission that we can see with these um, with our optical telescopes uh, on the ground. And that's called afterglow emission, sort of after the initial explosion but afterglow emission is really fast. Um so we're talking, you know, hours and it's gone. Um and for most of the history of gamma ray bursts, the way that we've found these optical afterglows is a gamma ray burst satellite tells us, "Oh, there's a gamma ray burst here." And then immediately, you know, you point your telescope at that location and you can watch the afterglow. So we've collected hundreds and hundreds of afterglows uh, over the last two decades or so and we've You know, learn. We've been able to, or I guess, really, no, yeah, two decades, and we've been able to learn a lot about the physics of these explosions uh, that way. But the question that I've been trying to answer is: Are there afterglows out there that don't have a gamma ray burst? Because if you're select, you know, if you're only finding them because you were alerted to a gamma ray burst, you can't ask this question the other way around. Um, So I've been trying to ask this question uh, the other way around. And so I've been using uh, ZTF to look for optical transients that look like afterglows. And then after I find one, I ask the question, was there a detected gamma ray burst? Um, and so, so far uh, in ZTF, we have found uh, two of these things, uh, neither of which seem to have had um, a detected gamma ray burst. Perhaps this gamma ray burst was just missed somehow, um, but I think it'll get really interesting as we find more and more of these things, because if none of them have detected gamma ray bursts, that would really suggest that there is a different population of these things out there.
0: That is a really good example. That is also an example I didn't know about, um, because this to me is one of those things where we we have a theory to say like, oh, we see this thing, and then sometimes we also see this other thing, and that's what it is. It's sort of like, you know, oh, we we heard a gunshot, and then we went and we found, like, yep, there was a bullet and it landed over here. But. What you're saying is, well, what if we do it the other way? What if we just look for all the bullets that are out there and maybe we'll find one that doesn't have a gunshot? And that's something that we need to explain. Is there some sort of cosmic silencer that's happening on these objects? Or are they genuinely being created by a mechanism as well that just doesn't create gamma ray bursts at all? That is a question I wouldn't have even known to ask until this conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, in our, you know, even in our basic model of gamma ray bursts, there are a lot of reasons to expect that there should be afterglows that don't have a gamma ray burst. Like these things should always be pointing directly at Earth. Hmm. Uh, we should, they, they sometimes they should be pointing away from us. And in that case, we would expect to still see the afterglow emission, but not the gamma ray burst itself. So that's the most kind of, that's just a geometry thing. Right. Um, But there could be more sort of physical reasons, like maybe some jets just aren't capable of uh, accelerating material to high enough speeds you need to be going really really fast to produce gamma ray burst emission it's not obvious that that would be something that they all do maybe some of these jets actually get stifled in the star Um, there's been some evidence that that might happen and so that's you know that's another reason why we might expect to find this phenomenon uh, without the gamma ray burst so there's this whole kind of landscape uh, i mean the question i guess another way to phrase the question is uh, you know, are these gamma ray bursts that we've been studying in detail for decades, just the tip of the iceberg of a much broader landscape of jet powered uh, phenomena. So that's what I'm trying to address.
0: I think that's uh, I think that's a fascinating place to be on the bleeding edge of science. Like this is right up against the scientific frontier. And it, it makes me think because I I think the more of these conversations I have with people the more I start to appreciate you know how our assumptions about what should be out there drive what it is that we look for and I think that we're entering the da- the era of big data in astronomy and we're entering the era of machine learning in astronomy that I think we're starting to find different classes of events than we even knew to look for that are out there, uh, and this sounds like this sounds like one in in hindsight that it makes sense to look for. But I'm really curious um, about both now and in the coming decade, particularly when LSST or the Vera Rubin Observatory comes online. Uh, I'm really curious if there aren't going to be you know some surprises of things that we didn't think necessarily to go out and look for but that the universe gives us nonetheless that are really going to make us think hard about the different types of for example stellar explosions that happen in the universe
1: right absolutely i think whenever you uh, whenever you devise a new way of looking at the universe, you'll always come up with things that you weren't expecting to find in the first place, and that's part of why working in this area is so exciting.
0: I can't really sort of express how much I am excited about LSST because I, I'm excited about all of the science that I fully expect is going to come out of it. I'm excited about all the cosmological things it's going to be able to measure. I'm excited about all the near-Earth objects and the small Kuiper Belt objects that it's going to be able to find. I'm excited that uh, it'll be able to tell us once and for all in pretty short order whether Planet Nine is real or it's just a theoretical prediction that didn't pan out. but as far as transient events go, this is going to be a telescope that is so much larger, so much more powerful, can see so much fainter in such a short amount of time than than any transient facility we have today that, that we're literally looking at an order of magnitude or more improvement right off the bat, like as soon as this turns on. And I think anytime you advance your equipment or your uh or your measuring apparatus by that significant a margin um you're you're bound to find things that are going to surprise you. I would say the biggest surprise for me would be if l s s t didn't find a whole new set of classes of objects that we've never seen before
1: yeah i'll I'll just add i think i mean l s s t is uh it can see much fainter things than what we can see now, say with something like ZTF, but it actually can't see that you pay a price for that, which is that it can't see things that are very bright. So I think there will still be room for smaller surveys to discover the bright things that are nearby. So for example, 18 cow was so bright, it would have saturated LSST. So there is still a lot of room for telescopes to find the bright things that are nearby that we can actually study in detail. Um, whereas LSST's great strength is really that it'll give us fainter things in enormous numbers,
0: right? And that and that those two things go hand in hand because if you can see, you know, we know how brightness and distance scale with each other. So if you can see something that's, for example, and this is this is overkill. This is not how good LSST is, but it's it's a nice example that makes the numbers work out pretty well. If you can see things that are a hundred times fainter. ...than your previous observatory, then that means you can see things ten times farther away, which means if you are looking at the entire sky and you're looking at the entire volume of the universe if you can see 10 times farther away in three dimensions that means you have a 1000 times the volume that you can probe in the universe that you can see these objects out to whereas you if you could have only seen these things out to 200 million light years with ztf then you could see them out to 2 billion light years with pans with sorry with lsst and that's and that's a 1000 times the volume so the big thing you say about enormous numbers i i Also, look at this as this is an enormous survey volume as well, comparatively.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, personally, one of the things I'm most excited to use LSST for is not the stuff that's far away, but actually the stuff that's nearby. So, imagine that we have a stellar explosion, a supernova that happens nearby, that we pick we pick up in something like ZTF. So, with ZTF. You know, we get to see uh, the peak of the light curve. We see it go up and down. But then with something like LSST, you could ask the question, what was happening uh, at this location prior to the explosion of the star? So you can go back in time and to very deep limits, say, you know, was this star, you know, was it, did it shed material? Did it produce, um, did it kind of, uh, did it have eruptions before it actually exploded? So I talked earlier about these death omens that we have realized that some stars have. Um, and I think LSST can tell us something about the pre-explosion history and activity of stars as well.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. That hadn't occurred to me because uh, LSST is not just a differential survey. It's it's a full-on survey where it's going to record all of this data and save it all. So by the time LSST has been active for a few years, you can go back a few years when you do see a transient happen and sort of ask yourself, hey, what was happening here a month ago a year ago three years ago um, and you can look and see what were the events that took place in this star or in this galaxy or in this region of the sky that may have been interesting you know at some point in the in the relatively long ago past that you're not just looking at hours or days or weeks anymore that you can go back years in time to this incredible precision and sort of learn were there any interesting, unexpected, bizarre behaviors that were going on in this star um, before the explosion, as well as, you know, during and afterwards?
1: Right, exactly. So, you know, everyone's been talking about Betelgeuse, like, oh, is it going to explode? But I, I think that the answer is that we don't know what stars do before they explode. And if we don't know that, then you can't look at a star and predict whether or not it's going to explode. So what we have to do first is we have to first take explosions that we do know happened, then go back in time and ask, what was the star doing before it exploded? We establish that mapping, um, and then you can start to make this more of a predictive thing.
0: Yeah, if we had had something like LSST active, uh, leading up to the supernova of 1987, uh, we would have just so much data to study about what's been the nearest supernova to us in over a century.
1: Absolutely. So hopefully LCC will be able to provide data like that for for the next uh, most nearby supernova.
0: Yeah. And hopefully the universe will cooperate and give us a relatively nearby supernova to work with one that's, you know, maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of light years away rather than, you know, 10 million or so.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, I can hope anyway. (laughs) Uh, So one of the things that a lot of people have been paying attention to is um one of the confounding factors to these large survey telescopes which is the threat that mega constellations pose to them you know right now you talked about the detector getting saturated and I know that the PanStar's detector saturates at a magnitude of like plus 15 which is which is pretty faint already like that's what if you if you had about a 12 to 14 inch telescope at home and you went to pristine dark skies and you went and saw the absolute faintest object you could see, you'd be approaching magnitude 15. And that is something that, you know, you see something that bright in the PANSTARS detector, and PANSTARS is one of the predecessor telescopes like ZTF to the LSST, um, you say, wow, you actually have to be fainter than that to make sense of it, to understand what's going on. Otherwise, you saturate your detector. And a saturated detector not only means that those pixels are no good for the duration of that image, they mean that you're going to have a saturated detector that needs time to reset and clear itself before it can take good observations again. Um, With all of these bright enormous numbers of satellites going up, there's a real worry that a large percentage of LSST observations, I've seen 30% be used as a low-end estimate during uh, early and late parts of the night, Um, you're really looking at this additional confounding factor. And I was curious if you had anything to share with us about about what your concerns are about this and how this might affect the type of research that you do?
1: Yeah, so I guess there are two different areas of my work that this will impact. One is the robotic optical surveys that we've been talking about, so things like ZTF, LSST, um, where you know these things could manifest themselves as streaks uh, in an image. So there's that side of things. Uh, and then there's also the radio astronomy uh, because these things will also uh, cause radio interference, basically, which is something that, and, and yeah, I guess, with all of this, you know streaks and interference, these are things that we already uh, do battle with uh, in our in our astronomy research, but this has the potential to make that um, a lot worse. I think at this stage, you know where we astronomers ourselves are trying to understand what the impacts of this will be. And it's not straightforward to do that. You have to do, you know, careful modeling of these things. Um, it'll require us to actually do observations of them, and I think that there's been work done on this by amateur astronomers as well. Uh, so I think we're still trying to understand what, what what these things will look like, how bright they will be, whether there's any way you can improve it by, you know, coding the satellites in something. Um, so I think at this point, uh, as far as I know, we don't really know how much this is going to affect us. Uh, I don't want to speak for everyone, though, perhaps some people uh, know more about this. But, but, yeah, certainly some people know more about this than I do. I'm not an expert. Um, but for example, I just saw the other day that I don't, this is only last week that there was a paper uh, published by one of my colleagues, uh, trying to do some analysis of this to report to the community, what the effect might be. So it's something people are actively working on.
0: Yeah, and astronomers have a uh, a well deserved reputation for being as careful as they can with their data before they go public with it. Um, but um, this is this is an issue that I think a lot of people in a lot of different fields of astronomy are concerned about, are impacted by, and are and are a little bit um, a little bit displeased at the way things are currently progressing. Um, as far as um, as far as a lack of what seems to be accountability on the part of satellite providers for actually not interfering with astronomical observations,
1: but yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot of the history about how this came about, to be honest. But something I've been thinking about personally not not really as an astronomer, but just kind of as a as a human is that the night sky is something that we all have access to and changing what that night sky looks like is a pretty big deal so uh and i've just been reflecting on how uh we can make sure to get you know on on what kinds of uh on what kind of say we should all have and what our night sky looks like and what the process could be that one might have to go through before making a big change uh, to what it is that all of us uh, see every night and that i think some of us really treasure.
0: I, I think so, too. I think that's a really nice sentiment. And I think it shares sort of uh, a number of perspectives about humans being stewards of the natural world and of the night sky being a shared, a shared not only cultural heritage for all of us, but a shared natural resource that that maybe we should be a little bit better about preserving than we have been want to i want to I wanna switch gears back a little bit to a variety of ways that stars die um because one of the things i've sort of been curious about uh and i don't know how much this overlaps with your research but i do know that it does overlap with um with these future surveys is one of the things we've started to notice relatively recently is that we will see stars that are there and they shine bright and they're pretty on the massive side. And then all of a sudden, they seem to just wink out of existence with no supernova, with no explosion, with no cataclysm, they just seem to faint out and disappear. Right. Um, And there's a a theory going around that perhaps these are massive stars that are direct collapsing to black holes without a cataclysm. Um, Because you're interested in stellar deaths, is this something that you've explored or are interested in exploring at all? And do you anticipate that things like LSST will be able to shed additional light on these types of events?
1: Yeah, so it's something I haven't worked on uh, in the past, but I'm certainly interested in interested in it and and aware of some of the context. So it's just for a bit of context. It's actually really hard to explode a star. So people have been trying to do this in simulations for years. And it's just it seems to require, you know, fairly finely tuned parameters. So there's no particular reason, I think, uh, I will, to, to, to think that all stars would have a successful explosion. Um, for perfectly reasonable sets of parameters, you might have a situation where the thing just collapses, and that's it. So these are called failed, failed supernovae. And it's sort of harder to find failed supernovae than it is to find successful supernovae, because the successful ones are bright. And so we can see them you know, out across the universe. And the failed ones, obviously, are not as bright. And so people have Hypothesize certain signatures one might find a failed supernovae. So there are different ways you can approach this. One way is to um, monitor a, a large number of stars and then wait for one to disappear, as you said. And people have um, made pretty heroic efforts on that front, and they've found a couple of of good candidates. So that that's something that I think LST could be useful for. I don't actually know. I've not thought through you know, how many we would expect and so on with LSST. So I would have to, I would have to kind of do that math for well, saying you're, anything. You're not um,
0: expected to be the one astronomer who does all of this. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh
1: <laughs> well, I think that there are also other ways we might expect to find these things. So actually what I was talking about before with, um, with, about gamma ray bursts. So the physical process for producing these things is you have a newly formed black hole and it's accreting matter. And in that process of accreting matter it launches an outflow, And so you might actually expect that a failed supernova would do the same thing because you might form a black hole. If it's spinning quickly enough and, you know, the material is configured in kind of the right way, then that material that falls back could actually accrete onto it and you could uh, produce an outflow. So I think it's not inconceivable that something like 18 cow um, was that kind of thing where you had some newly formed uh, black hole and then you had a bunch of material kind of swirling onto it. Uh, So that could happen in a failed supernova and i think we don't have any kind of um i think they're actually no there's one example of an event where i think uh i think they saw a star disappear and then they also saw some kind of outflow but i'm not 100 percent sure uh, about that but yeah i guess all that is to say that there could also be transients that you could find uh, in the night sky that would be sp- that would be signatures of a failed supernova. And I think that's something that has been hypothesized, but never really, but we haven't been able, we haven't learned how to find in significant numbers just yet. So that's sort of a frontier of this field.
0: I think that's fascinating. You know, first off, I think it reminds me very much of what we were just talking about earlier, where you talked about, well, we had gamma ray bursts, and then we saw this afterglow, or this thing that we associated as an afterglow. But would we ever see that sort of afterglow without having the gamma ray burst accompanying it. And the answer should be yes. And we've seen a couple and how many of them are out there. I feel like this is sort of looking for that same thing to say like, well, if we don't have a successful supernova, will there still be an observable signature with the death of a star? And I know that's one of the things that you are most interested in studying is I'll just call them uh, stellar evolutionary endpoints, which is... yeah. The different ways that stars can end their lives. And it makes sense to say, you know, it seems relatively unlikely that with all the different examples we have in the universe of how stars end and how many different stars we have, that they're all going to end in the same few ways. Like even if these are not common ways, or they're difficult to observe ways, as we get to better observatories, as we collect more data, as our data gets better quality, and as we start to think of more things to look for, we might start to find new ways that stars can end their lives.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, the way that I think about the frontier of this field is that, so we have stars, we know that stars exist, because we obviously see them in our, in our own Milky Way galaxy we have stellar explosions which we also know exist because we see them kind of throughout the universe and then we also know that the that their corpses exist so we see their black hole we see the we see black holes or we see evidence for black holes and evidence for neutron stars primarily in our own milky way galaxy again so we kind of see these different stages we see the star in its life we see the moment of death we and then we see this afterlife or this or this corpse but we really it's been really difficult. We we usually don't see these things together, like we don't see a star first, and then witness it explode and then see it become a black hole. And we usually see these stages completely separately. And so we only can indirectly link one to the other. So we don't really have uh, definitive answers yet to you know, which of these stars become which of these explosions become which of these black holes and neutron stars.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of great. It makes me think of a picture of, you know, what do you want a ladder built out of? Do you want a ladder built out of two solid pieces of wood that go all the way up? Or do you want a ladder built out of Legos where you have all these different, you know, pieces that you've pieced together? Well, you probably don't want the Lego one because when you stand on it, it seems to run a much larger risk of falling apart than the solid wood one. And that and that's basically what you're talking about here is saying, you know, with, with the new data, the new observatory that we'll have, we're going to have an enormously good chance of actually going back to before the cataclysmic explosion, getting good data about the cataclysmic explosion itself, and then learning what happens to that object shortly and even a long period after that cataclysm has taken place. So so it seems like you're going to be able to get unified observations, all of the same object going forward and forward and forward in time.
1: Yeah, that's that's the hope for the future, I think.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Anna, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I I'm going to make my audience all wish you good luck on your PhD <laughs> defense coming up this July. I know you'll do great. Um I've <laughs> I've you. been I've seen enough of your research that I don't have any doubts about it or the future success of your career whatever direction you choose to take it in. Um oh, Thank you but i'd love to give you the opportunity to give sort of a final message to our audience if there were if there were one extra thing that you could share with everyone about about astronomy about your field about anything you choose what would you like them to hear
1: Ooh, uh that's it's hard to pick just one thing um i'll say a couple that just come to mind off the top of my head i mean one is that uh none of this work would be possible without public support. And so one of the messages I want to send is just thank you uh, to the listeners to the members of the public for their support of, of science and f- of the scientific endeavor and of astronomy. Um, another point uh, that comes to mind is that uh, all are welcome to join this endeavor, um, whether you're someone kind of starting out in your career in your education, and you'd like to, uh, you think that you might like to pursue science, Uh, I'd encourage you to give it a try. It's something that I didn't think I would ever want to do if you had asked me in high school. Um, but I changed my mind, uh, because I had the chance to, to try it. So, uh, yeah, I just want to say that, uh, that, that all are welcome, um, in this field. And maybe a third final message is just something else that I think is cool about, about star explosions, which, uh, Probably a lot of people have heard this message before, but the one, I mean, one of the reasons I think these are so cool is that we believe that these are the forges of much of the elements, uh, many of the elements in the universe. And in particular, the ones that we and the earth are made of. So, uh, when we're studying these, uh, we get spectra of the aftermath of the explosion and we see iron and carbon and oxygen. Uh, and I think that that's just, I mean, it's really quite special to be able to see that in your, in one's telescope.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. That is still one of the most profound facts that I know of in the entire universe is that all of our existence, our our cells, our biological processes, even our planet itself would not have been possible without previous generations of stars living and dying. And the stars that run through their life cycles that end their lives today, they're going to be contributing that material for the next generations of stars, of planets, and probably of even life. Yeah,
1: Actually, can I share one more really cool thing? I'm sorry. You can come. No, 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 no. Uh, no. This is just something really cool. I I found out recently. So, so this field of stellar explosions is actually quite ancient. So people have been, you know, seeing stars explode for hundreds and thousands of years, because if you have one that's close enough, you can actually see it with your naked eye in the night, in this, in the sky day and night uh, for weeks. So, um, Uh, So an example was there were two actually within a few decades of each other in the late 1500s and the early 1600s, and they were particularly well documented by Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe. And what I think is absolutely amazing is that hundreds of years later, so nowadays, we can still see the aftermath of those explosions. So Kepler and Brahe and everyone living on the Earth at that time, they could see – They saw the explosion itself happen, but now today with our modern equipment, we can go and we can still observe the aftermath of uh, what's called Tycho's supernova and Kepler's supernova. And from our observations of this aftermath, we've been able to figure out what kind of star it was that exploded hundreds of years ago. And uh, one technique people use is called light echoes. So the explosion happened a long time ago, but it's still echoing off of gas and dust in the region. And so you can actually still watch the explosion. You can kind of replay it through those echoes. And I just, something else I really like about astronomy is that there's this kind of long arc of uh, people asking questions and then trying to answer those questions and making some progress, but then getting stuck and then sort you of know, advancements coming later. And I think it's just, I really like thinking about how I'm picking up some pieces left behind by Uh, by my predecessors, and then uh, making small advancements. So I think it's just cool that we've been able to um, answer a question that was probably posed by these astronomers hundreds of years ago.
0: You know, I don't think I've ever heard someone give such a uh, long time period appreciation of what it really means to stand on the shoulders of giants. So thank you for sharing that story with us. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for bearing with me. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, and thank you for a great podcast, Anna. Thanks to all of you for tuning in as well. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berneger, John Van Balguyen, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Laird WH, Ahmed Lee Comsi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergey Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcciak, Danny, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Tomas Walgren, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Reneke, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hipp, Rusheen Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbitt, James Nance, Nathan Hanna, Tomas all, Glenn McDavid, Benhead, David Taschioni, and Philip Radilovic. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time here for more Starts with a Bang.